You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Um, Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 to 44. I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. And they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man in Maon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, Long life to you, and peace to you, peace to your family, and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you. For we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them, Who was David? Who was Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they are from. David's young men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, All of you, put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed, and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. There were a wall around us, both day and night, the entire time we were with them, herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do, because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, Go ahead of me, I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain past hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, 
yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my lord be given to young men, who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your descendant be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what she said and have granted your request. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in his house holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk, so she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died, and he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. She stood up, paid homage with her face to the ground, and said, Here I am, your servant, a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly, and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers, and so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the two of them became his wives. But Saul gave his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Palti son of Laish, who was from Galim. I wonder, have you realized, uh, it tends to be a phenomenon of most of us, uh, that most people want justice for others. 
When I say justice, I mean judgment. But we want justice for others, but we're actually not so keen on it for ourselves. And we want mercy for ourselves, but we're not so keen on mercy for others. So, so when someone hurts us, we want justice, don't we? We want our hurt to be acknowledged. We even want the other person to be appropriately punished for what they've done. But, but then there's always this moment, right, isn't there, where we bring up our grievance, we say, I want justice to be done to you, and they go, wait, but don't you, don't you remember, you did that to me. And then you go, oh, well, well let's be reasonable here. I mean, like, justice, you know, mercy is actually not such a bad thing. Uh, when it comes to the ways in which we've hurt others, Justice isn't what we want, is it? We want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. Uh, a few years ago, I was speaking uh, with a cousin of mine who's not a Christian, and I remember asking her, I said, if God exists, like just thought experiment, if God does exist, assume that he does, and, and one day you stand before him on that last day, and you have to give an account for your whole life. He's the judge, you stand before him, and he gets to open the books of your life and see anything you've ever said, thought, or done, in that moment, what do you want? Justice or mercy? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, like, if it were me and I were to stand before God, and if I were to give an account for absolutely everything I've ever said, thought, or done in my life, and God, the perfectly holy judge, were to make a call on that, can I tell you, I would be pleading for mercy. These chapters that we look at here, they are the climax of the conflict between David and Saul. And let me ask a question. If you were David in this conflict, and this conflict is finally coming to an end, what would you want? Justice or mercy? Let me be very honest. If I were David, I would be not just wanting, I would be demanding justice. I mean, get this right. Saul. The king, my father-in-law, has been chasing me around Israel trying to kill me. I mean, I would want to be vindicated. I would want Saul to be punished. That's not vindictive. That's not vengeance. That's just justice, isn't it? And yet, what we find on every page of these chapters is mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Saul does not receive the judgment he deserves. Now, can I be honest, right? You guys are almost more than likely much more holier than I am, but I find this really frustrating. Because if I'm the one who sinned against, I don't want mercy for the other person. I want to bring down the hammer of justice. Praise God, I'm not the king. <laughs> because though he is judged unjustly, God judges us with mercy. That's the best news you'll ever hear. Because it means that there is a possibility, believe it or not, the world does exist where one day you can stand before God the judge, the books are opened, he looks at everything you've ever said, thought and done, and despite the fact that you deserve judgment, we will receive mercy. That is now possible. That's what these chapters show us. Wouldn't it be amazing? Let me show you first in chapter 23 and 24 an act of mercy, a great act of mercy. 
Now, that word mercy, it literally means to not receive what we really deserve. To not receive what we really deserve. If you were here last week, we played out the scenario. Uh, that Noon, who's been my friend for 17 years, comes home, meets my dad. And I say, all right, my dad takes a spear, throws it at him, right? Well, justice would mean jail for my dad. Mercy would mean freedom. Mercy means not receiving what we really deserve. And yet, that's the opposite of what actually David is getting, right? Here's the irony. David is actually receiving a judgment he doesn't deserve. Look with me. Let's trace, let's fly through these chapters. In verses 1 to 14 of chapter 23, keep your Bibles open, David hears news that the city of Calah is under attack. Okay, Israelite city under attack. Who should be the one to go and save them? Should be Saul, shouldn't it? Should be their king. He should be the one riding out. But instead, it's not Saul, it's David, the heir in exile. He does what Saul fails to do. He takes his band of 400 rejects to go and save the city, right? He shows himself to be the king under God, the the king that Israel really needs. Right throughout these chapters, David is constantly turning to God, constantly leading Israel to follow the Lord. David is being that king that Saul is not. David is the king who rescues his people. Great. If I were one of the city of Calah, I would love David. Here is my savior. But that's not what they do. Not only do they not care that David saved them, in fact, they plan to hand him over to Saul. They sell him out. That should make you angry, shouldn't it? Imagine, right, risking your own life to rescue someone only for them to then turn around and sell you out to death. Doesn't that just make you angry? Doesn't it make your blood boil on some level? David is getting a judgment that he just doesn't deserve. But it gets even worse. In verses 15 to 24, he runs to the wilderness of Ziph, but before he even arrives, the Ziphites sell him out as well. Tough day in the office. Verses 24 to 49, he runs to the wilderness of Ma'on, and here it looks like it's game over. David and his 400 men on one side of the mountain, Saul and his men climbing up the other side of the mountain. They're closing in, but just before they catch David, look at what happens. A messenger comes and says to Saul, come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. And thank God, David saved just in the nick of time. But pause for a moment, right? Like, Put yourself in David's shoes. Wouldn't you be somewhat frustrated, somewhat bewildered, somewhat annoyed? Right? I'm totally innocent here, but why am I so deeply hated? I've done nothing wrong, but I'm being judged so unjustly. I even saved the city of Calah from death, but they've handed me over to death. There's something deeply unjust in all of this, isn't there? Well, it all reaches a climax in chapter 24 in the wilderness of En Gedi. Look at what happens. Saul leads 3,000 troops, 3,000 highly militarized men, and they come against David's 600 rejects. And in almost that moment, five to one, everyone in your life turns against you. And you're like, well, at least I have these. Oh, they're not that much, are they? 
But then, right, just imagine this. For the last few months, you're, you've been targeted, chased, attacked, under siege. And then in verse 3, the stars align. Look at it. This is the best line here, right? When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, the cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. It's almost comical, isn't it? He went in to do a number two, right? Like, just imagine, you're chased by Saul who wants to kill you, and now, our oh, gift of God, here he is, alone, in a cave, literally with his pants down, right? Like, if you were David, what would you do? I'd kill him. Self-defense, isn't it? Act of justice. In fact, it's what Saul deserves. Even David's men say, hey, come on, David, it's a gift of God. Take it, right? Though God never said that, but you could believe it, couldn't you? David, he doesn't take Saul's life. Instead, he cuts off a corner of his robe. This might concern you, but if it were me, I would have cut off his head. Right? This is my life on the line, right? David is judged unjustly, but he judges Saul with mercy in a way that doesn't make any sense at all. Instead of taking Saul's life as he could, he takes only a corner of his robe. And we could stop there and go, look at this wonderful act of mercy. But I want you to see and realize that this action, though it might look innocuous, is actually not as merciful as it might seem. There is a shadow to this here. Because cutting off the royal robe is a sign of tearing away Saul's kingship. It's a symbol of disloyalty and rebellion. It would be like David coming to steal Saul's crown. That's why in verse 5, David's conscience bothers him. Because he realizes that, yeah, sure, this is an act of mercy, but it's also an act of rebellion. It's a sin against the king. Now, I know we don't like Saul by now. We know that God has rejected him. We've rejected him. We think he's a little bit unhinged, right? But he's still the king. There are a few greater sins than this. You see, to lift our hand against the Lord's anointed is to reject the rule of the king. It's true. This is an act of mercy. And we need to look at this and go, wow, David could have done so much worse but this is also the first sign of David's sin. It's that moment we realize and go, oh, so he's not perfect. There is a hint that David is not everything we had hoped for in this king. But right now, it's just a hint. Right now, the overwhelming note is one of mercy. David comes out of the cave, he pleads his innocence to Saul, and he entrusts himself to God as the judge. And in verses 17 to 19, Saul captures the heart of David's mercy. It's right there. You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, even though I have done what is evil to you. So yeah, a shadow of sin, but a remarkable act of mercy. But now there's a test of mercy. But I don't know about you, I'm starting to feel a little bit uneasy. I had, look, I got it, right? Saul, bad idea. We tried that, didn't work, right? But David... David, sure, David will work. He is the king that we can trust. But now we're not so sure because we just caught a glimpse of David's sin. And some of us will start to panic. Oh, my gosh, David sinned. 
Sin has to be, at the same time, the most unsurprising and predictable reality in life, right? But we find us constantly surprised by it. And we go, David sinned, and now Samuel's dead. So who's going to make sure that David doesn't go off the rails as a king? And we're close to it. But look at what happens in chapter 25, where we meet a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. His name is Nabal. He's a corporate thug, and he only has one redeeming quality about him. He married well. He has a wife who's beautiful, intelligent, and her name is Abigail. In verses 4 to 11, we find out that David had actually met Nabal's men when he was back in Carmel in the wilderness of Ma'on. Like he was there when David was running away from, from Saul. He had met Nabal's men. And at that time, back then, David and his men were actually really kind to Nabal's workers. They, they didn't steal any of their stuff. They didn't harass them. But they did more than that. They actually protected them. That's what it says in verse 16. And then one of Nabal's servants says that David's men were a wall around us both day and night. They were like their personal security detail, right? And verse 21 says that David's men guarded everything that belonged to Nabal. So in many ways, David and his band of brothers, they had protected and provided for Nabal in much the same way that they had protected and saved the city of Calah. David had shown an immense act of kindness to this total stranger. And so now, David needs some supplies. And it, and it makes perfect sense, right? Why not ask Nabal? We looked after his guys. Surely now he can help us. But just as the city of Calah judged David unjustly, so does Nabal. I want you to see what he says in verse 10. Right? Now remember, this is a guy who had basically saved your bacon every step of the way. And now you go, who's David? Who is Jesse's heir? You know, many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Whoa. Is that what you really want to say? To God's anointed king? Who are you? Oh, you must be one of those runaway renegade slaves. And then he says, what? Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give it to these men? And David would be thinking, mate, you know, without these men, you would have nothing at all. Imagine that for all the good that David did, for all the kindness that he showed to Nabal. Nabal now comes and isn't just ungrateful, he's unjust. And I get it, right? If I were David, after everything that I've been through, this is the straw that, bakes, that breaks the camel's back. It's like you've had the worst week, and then at the very end, someone does something so small, but you're like, that's it, I've had it, right? I've been mistreated, hunted down, judged unjustly by everyone for the last seven chapters. Think about it, right? You're David. What's happened? I've had a spear thrown at me by my, my, by my father-in-law three times. I've been set up and sent to the front lines to be killed. I've had hitmen come and try and take my life. I've left my wife and my best mate to be on the run from a king who wants to kill me. And you know what? I'm a good guy, right? I, it's not just that I'm, I don't deserve that, but I do my best, right? Like, I try to do the right thing. Even on the run, I turn to God. I follow his word. I even risk my life to save the people of Kalar, and I looked after that man's stuff all for one. 
the people I betray, the people, no, the people I saved betray me, and the man I blessed stuffs me over. I've had it. My patience has run out. I'm done, right? The Bible calls Nabal a fool and an idiot. So let's just say, this idiot has pushed me over the edge. No more mercy. And then you get verse 13. All of you put on your swords. Arm up, lock and load, it's going down, right? And part of me thinks, yeah, like, let's do this, right? Like, he got, he got to know, right? You've just got to teach him a lesson, right? Just like Saul, Nabal deserves it. His own servant is so done with his boss that he goes to the boss's wife and calls his boss a worthless fool. And his wife agrees. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, right? Like, she goes behind her husband's back to fix the whole situation. Can I say, Nabal has to be one of the most repulsive characters in the Bible that you will ever meet. He does not deserve mercy. He deserves justice. And can I say, if I were David, I would love to be the arm of the Lord and the sword of God's justice. But then you read verse 21. And you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, this isn't an act of justice. This is vengeance. Look at what David says. I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. And now here's the line that should make your, in many ways, your insides crawl, right? May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. Okay. Calm down, David, right? Like, just. Maybe that's not justice. That's vengeance. He's baying for blood. This is too far. Can I? You get these awkward moments when you prepare a sermon, right? And at college, you study, like Christian, you would have studied Hebrew for however many years, and we, we do our best. And so, okay, so you go to look at the Hebrew, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much worse than what the English says. The English translators tried to sanitize it because it was just awkward. Because what David says is actually far more vulgar and crude than what you read in the English. I won't give you the full thing, but I'll just, if you'll excuse, it's in the Bible, so I'm just going to, if you'll excuse the crudity, right? This is what David literally says. Here's my clunky translation. May God make me an enemy to him and so much more if by morning I leave any alive of his people who piss against the wall. Now, if you want to, I could have said urinate, I know, but the King James Version, right? The King James Version, so let's go there. It says, any that pisseth against the wall, right? So David is so angry. He sledges Nabal's men in the crudest possible terms. He pretty much says, if you're a man with genitals, I'll kill you. And you won't be alive by morning. I'll kill you all. <laughs> okay, justice is one thing. This is too far. What a far cry from the mercy that he just showed Saul. Well, you look at David's white hot rage and you wonder, my gosh, who is this king? Where is his mercy gone? Where is his faith in God now to protect and provide for him as God has done time and time and time again? Now, I feel for David. I get it. He is unjustly judged over and over again. He's pushed over the edge by this fool and idiot called Nabal and every wick has its end. But this is the dark side of the king, isn't it? The dark side that lurks in every one of our hearts. 
that vengeful self who will tear our enemies to shreds. The sinful person in every one of us who will show no mercy. Friends, this is a moment that yet again, remember, high hopes give way to deep disappointment. I mean, we knew, I, I got it, right? I knew Saul was sinful, but I thought David would be different. But David's just about to fail this test of mercy, just like Saul did. And then, at the 11th hour, just as God saved David from Saul, Abigail now comes and saves David from himself. Here's a model of a godly woman. She steps in, she steps up. She bears the guilt, calls her husband a fool, invokes Yahweh's covenant name, acknowledges David as king, reminds David of God's protection, and pleads with David for mercy. And David's anger disappears. And he gives her the mercy she pled for. He says to her in verse 33, Today you have kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Because you hear what David is saying. He's saying, if not for Abigail's intervention, I would have failed this test of mercy. I would have just become Saul round two. But because of her plea, and though Nabal judged David unjustly, David judged him and his household with mercy. This is a mixed picture, isn't it? I lay in bed most of the week. Sorry, not most of the week. When I was lying in bed, most of the week I was thinking about this passage. I was not bedridden, don't worry. And I was just like, I don't get this passage. I don't get it. Because normally we're used to like, good guy, bad guy. White hats, black hats, right? That's what we think. But it's a mixed picture. David does show himself to be a merciful king. That's great. But at the same time, there's a dark side to this king that we start to see emerge. Because look at what he does next. He takes Abigail as his wife. You're like, wait, really? Throughout the whole Old Testament, God is judging polygamy as sinful and harmful. But here, David is marrying not just Abigail, but also Ahinoam. Why? Presumably to extend his political power. David is better than Saul. It's an improvement. Don't worry. But not by much. Even the godliest leader will inevitably fail us. So many of us, haven't we, been disappointed by Christian leaders. And so we went through the thought experiment of Saul. We go, oh, yes, okay, so a good lesson. I'm not going to look for the outwardly impressive. I'll look at the heart. I'll look, for, I'll look for a leader who is godly, who is humble, who is repenting of sin. But can I say even that is not enough? Because it won't take you too long to realize that even a godly leader is never godly enough. This side of eternity, even the holiest heart is stained by sin. So, so we approach the final chapter of this great conflict with this lingering question. Which way will David go? We've seen him extend mercy and we've seen him be merciless and we're not quite sure. What will he do? Praise God, we see a super abundant mercy. 
You go to chapter 26, right, and you find a scene that's so similar to chapter 24 that it's like that moment where you see the same cat walk by twice and you ask yourself, déjà vu? In both chapters, David is in the wilderness. In both chapters, he has the opportunity to kill Saul. In both chapters, his men see it as a gift of God. In both chapters, he refuses to kill Saul and he takes something from him. And in both chapters, Saul repents of his sin. But I want you to see that they're important differences. They're not the same event. In the first scene, Saul is, Saul is all alone with his pants down. But in this chapter, Saul is fast asleep next to his commander, Abner. And where David cut the corner of his robe in chapter 24, no, in chapter 26, he takes Saul's spear and jug. It's almost as if the same scene just kind of repeats itself to see what David will do. Action replay. What are you going to do now, right? Will you show Saul the same mercy that you did the first time? Or will you be as merciless to him as you were going to be with Nabal? Which king are you going to be here? Make your choice. And David does neither. He doesn't just show him mercy. He shows him a super abundant mercy. It's as if convicted by having raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, being convicted of having sought to kill Nabal, David now shows mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. He doesn't violently cut off the corner of Saul's kingship. He simply takes away his provision and protection. But you see, Saul might be rejected by God, but he's still the king, at least for now. And as long as he's the king, David won't touch him. And David might be judged unjustly at every turn, but here, can you see, here is a king who judges with a super abundant mercy. He shows himself to be a merciful king. Can I say, if I were, look, if I were going to stand before God on that last day, Christian or not, right? And God would open the books of my life and look at everything I'd ever said, thought, and done. Do you realize, even though I could plead for mercy, it wouldn't be enough if God was merciful six out of seven days? Because what if I get him on a Friday after lunch, right? What if I get him on the day where I'm actually a bit more like Nabal than I am like Saul? It is not good enough to have a king who is kind of merciful, if there is a chink in that armor where the mercy gives way and the judgment comes through, I'm not risking that. David is not merciful enough. David is far from the perfect king. We've seen his anger, his vengefulness, his rage as he armed up to slaughter Nabal. And can you see, as merciful as David may be, he is not merciful enough. The truth is, I don't want to stand before a king like David. Because what if my sin is one sin too many? What if my sin is that one that is the straw that breaks the camel's back? What if my sin is the one that tips God over the edge just like Nabal's tipped David over the edge? No, friends, I need a king whose mercy is greater than my sin. You need a king whose mercy is greater than your sin. We need a king like Jesus. 
Well, friends, you see this, right? Jesus, he's great David's greatest son. He, of all people, is the Lord's anointed. And do you realize, right, the greatest sin throughout all these chapters is to lift our hand against the Lord's anointed. And yet that's exactly what we've done, isn't it? Haven't we all lifted our hand against Jesus when we refuse to live with him as our king? Haven't we all been like the people of Calah who handed Jesus over to death? Haven't we all been like Nabal when we treat Jesus as anything other than our king? A fool, a renegade slave, anything other than God? Have we all not lifted our hand against the Lord's anointed? Have we not all unjustly judged him? And yet has he not judged us with a superabundant mercy? Just as David spared Saul, Jesus spares us. He didn't give us what we really deserve. But he offers us what David offered Abigail. Forgiveness. Jesus allowed himself to be unjustly judged by us so that he might forgive us for rejecting him. Jesus was judged by us unjustly, but he judges us with mercy. You know what that means, right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, it means that you can actually stand before God on that last day. He can look at everything you've ever said, thought, or done, and he can look at you and say, mercy, mercy, mercy. All we have to do is to be like Abigail and plead for that mercy. Can I ask you, do you realize who the hero of these chapters is? Right? We really want to say, we always think it's David. David's the great hero, but it's not David. Definitely not Saul. In the greater scheme of things, it's God. But actually right here, the hero is Abigail. She shows us how we can respond to the mercies of God. Look at what she did. She owned her sin. She, she recognized David as the king. And she pled with him for forgiveness. And I want to say, friends, that the Bible is full of women just like Abigail. Women who show us how we can come to Jesus. In Matthew 15, we find another woman, a Canaanite woman, whose daughter is tormented by a demon, and she comes before Jesus, and I want you to hear what she says. This is what she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Have mercy on me. This Canaanite woman, she's following in the footsteps of Abigail. She's crying out for the Lord to show her mercy. And can I say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, these two women show you how you can be forgiven. They are examples of how you can receive mercy from God. Guaranteed. Right now. Right this very moment, you can be forgiven of anything you've ever said, thought, or done, or anything you will ever say, think, or do, if you do as they did, if you own your sin, if you recognize Jesus as king, 
And if you plead with him for mercy. If you're not a Christian, let me ask, will you cry out to God? Will you plead for him, with him for mercy? And will you know that if you ask him for it, he will give it to you over and over and over again? Mercy is written on every page of these chapters. You know, chapter 26, right? It's almost there for the sole purpose of showing us just how much mercy is on offer. Isn't it ironic? David didn't kill Saul because he didn't want to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. That's exactly, though, what Saul did to David, isn't it? As he sought to kill him over and over and over again. And we might think, David, you know, chapter 24, you showed Saul mercy. Chapter 26, he ignored your mercy, comes after you again. Okay, he's had his chance. No more mercy now. I've showed a lot of mercy. It's all at an end. Chapter 26 is here. It's time to take him out. But he doesn't do that. Chapter 24, abundant mercy. Chapter 25, an even greater mercy. Chapter 26, a super abundant mercy. Each and every time that Saul came after David, David extended to him mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Sisters and brothers, if you are a follower of Jesus, can I say, I know what it's like. We fight sin every day, and it's exhausting. It's one thing to fight sin, but it's another thing to fight the same old sins, isn't it? Before, I love Susie's prayer when she prayed for us, for those of us who struggle with addictions. And doesn't addiction so perfectly describe our attitude towards sin? We just keep going back. And just like David, the the dark side of our hearts that is gripped by anger, vengeance and selfishness, it rises again and again and again to the surface. And it's so easy to think that with all the sins that I cannot kill, all the sins that I keep going back to and feel racked with guilt and shame, surely by now I've exhausted the mercies of God. But remember this wisdom from the Puritan Richard Sibbs. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So when you relapse into that old, old sins, when the dark side of your heart rises again to the surface, will you go back to Jesus and plead for mercy? Will you be like Abigail and fall on your knees every night, repenting of your sin and receiving the mercy that Jesus offers? And will you experience what Saul experienced as David shows, showed to him mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy? Can I tell you, friends, your greatest sins cannot exhaust God's limitless mercies. But will you go a step further still? Will you cry out not only for yourself, but also for others? For did not Abigail cry for mercy on behalf of her household? Did not that Canaanite woman cry for mercy on on behalf of her daughter? And sisters and brothers, will we not cry out for mercy on behalf of our city? Will we not cry out for mercy on behalf of our nation? Will we not cry out for mercy on behalf of our family and friends who don't yet know the Lord? Will we not fall on our knees every night before our God, pleading with him, 
Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Pleading with him to show mercy on our friends who live under his wrath. Can I tell you, it delights the Lord to show mercy over and over and over again. Do not feel bad about coming to God. He wants you to come. Praise the Lord, friends, that though our world judges him unjustly, he judges us with mercy and he stands ready to forgive anyone who pleads with him for forgiveness. Anyone who's just like Abigail. Can I pray? Merciful God, we plead with you for that mercy that you delight to give. And we pray, God, that we would not be so proud in our own hearts that we refuse to receive your forgiveness. But we pray, God, that we might turn to you for sins new and sins old, knowing that you stand ready to forgive. And when that dark side of our heart rises to the surface, when those old sins and the old self return, kill that old self by reminding us of our new life in the Lord Jesus. God, we know that our greatest sins can never exhaust your limitless mercies. We praise you. Amen.